1: but I grew up in a relatively small town in southern Utah. Like everyone else I knew, my family was pretty conservative. When the radio was on, it was usually turned to Rush Limbaugh. Last year, I took a trip home just a few weeks after Donald Trump had won the Republican primary. I usually try to avoid it, but I ended up talking with my parents about politics. I wasn't surprised when they told me they were going to vote for Trump, but I was surprised to hear why. My mom told me she was supporting Trump because he was funny. Her answer struck me as strange. First, because for me, humor should be very low on the list of reasons to vote for the leader of the free world. And second, because Trump certainly didn't make me laugh. This whole experience made me think about how important humor has become in contemporary politics and whether that's a good thing. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the big ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis, and I'm your host. This episode is about the relationship between power, truth, and humor. About how sometimes humor reveals the truth, and other times conceals it.
0: I grew up with a sense that comedy was one of the main ways that you tell the truth to people who are lying, or you bring down bullies.
1: That's Emily Nussbaum, TV critic for The New Yorker. She wrote about the role of comedy in the 2016 election for the magazine.
0: I was a Jewish kid in the 70s and, uh, of course, for a variety of personal reasons in my house, I was soaked in knowledge of the Holocaust and of Nazis, but also in humor about the Nazis. And I loved the producers and all of the different movies that were made by often Jewish male comedians mocking Hitler and mocking the Nazis. It had seemed apparent from the time I was a child that there was something incredibly cathartic and powerful about making a joke at the expense of a fascist or somebody who seemed powerful.
1: But where did this idea that humor could be used to challenge the powerful come from? Greek playwrights like Aristophanes often used comic theater to mock politicians or the wealthy. But a recognizably modern form of political humor begins with the medieval court jester. Jesters were multi-talented entertainers, Storytellers, acrobats, musicians, jugglers. And in time, they also became known for using jokes to tell the truth when no one else around them would dare. Shakespeare was fascinated by the character of the truth-telling jester. In King Lear, the court fool is the only one able to see Lear's bluster for what it really was, madness, and the only one brave enough to say it to the king's face.
2: Sarah, I'll teach thee a speech. Mark it non The sweet and bitter fool will presently appear. The one in Motley here, the other found out there. Don't call me fool, boy.
1: Jesters are still with us. Today, we call them stand-up comics. Here's Kwesi, a stand-up comic in Boston. My name's Kwesi Mensa. One of the things that I liked about comedy is you are able to talk about things that are important to you. But as long as you put it in the form of a punchline, people would listen.
0: Like, people don't necessarily want to hear my thoughts about police brutality.
2: But if I put it in a joke about Luke Cage, people will listen to that.
1: A perfect example of this happened in October 2014. The stand-up comedian Hannibal Burris was performing in Philadelphia when he made a joke about the city's native son, Bill Cosby. The sitcom legend and comic genius had been one of the most popular and admired men in the country for decades. He was America's dad. An audience member recorded Burris's routine on their phone.
2: pull your pants up black people. I was on TV in the 80s. <laughs> I don't curse on stage. But yeah, you're a rapist, so. <laughs> i will take you saying lots of motherfuckers on Bill Cosby himself if you want a rapist.
1: At the time Burris made the joke, Allegations of Cosby's sexual assaults had been public for more than a decade. But it was only when his routine went viral that journalists began to cover the story. Now, Cosby is finally facing charges in court. It seems that sometimes the only way we can really hear the truth is through humor. But what happens when the joke-tellers aren't the people, but our politicians? Not the jester, but the king.
2: Mr. Truitt, your question to President Reagan.
1: October 21, 1984. It was the second presidential debate between President Ronald Reagan and former Vice President Walter Mondale. The first debate had gone terribly for Reagan. His closing statement was so rambling and incoherent that people began to suspect he might be suffering from mental illness. So it wasn't surprising when debate panelist Hank Truitt of the Baltimore Sun asked this question
2: you already are the oldest president in history and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with mister mister uh, mondale um, i recall yet that president kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the cuba missile crisis is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances not at all Mr. Truitt, and I and i want you to know that also i will not make age an issue of this campaign i am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience.
1: (laughs) Deflection, charm, humor. It was irresistible. Reagan won the audience over. He won the moderator over. He even won Mondale over. Everybody was laughing, and when the laughter stopped, nobody seemed to care that Reagan hadn't addressed the serious question of his age and mental capacities. Reagan would win the election by a landslide a month later.
2: Reagan really does cast this large shadow over our, our contemporary politics.
1: This is writer Avi Steinberg. He's a contributor to the New York Times Magazine, and his writing often uses humor to illuminate the hard-to-see truths around us.
2: And Reagan, as, as we know, obviously he was—he came out of Hollywood, but it's not just he came out of Hollywood. He, he was—he was a comedian, right? He was—he was a funny man, according to Steinberg. Reagan marked
1: a shift in our expectations of the president. Policies and leadership were no longer enough. By the 80s, we demanded that our presidents also entertain us. Nowhere is this new demand more noticeable than in the growing prominence and glamour of the annual White House Correspondents Dinner. The dinner used to be a small event, mostly for D.C. journalists, with the highlight usually a performance by singers like Frank Sinatra or Barbara Streisand. But in 1983, Reagan started the tradition of putting comedy front and center. The commander-in-chief became the comedian-in-chief. Here's Reagan at one of these dinners.
2: Larry also said that preparing me for a press conference was like reinventing the wheel. It's not true. I was around when the wheel was invented, and it was easier.
1: Soon, the annual dinner started to make it onto the social calendar of celebrities. In the early 90s, Vanity Fair magazine even started throwing glitzy after-parties. By the 2000s, it was clear that comedy and politics were becoming increasingly entwined. Millions of people started getting their political news from comedians like Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And even dedicated news channels, such as CNN and Fox News, began blending journalism and entertainment to ever-greater degrees. But there's a danger when politics becomes just a joke.
2: Well, I'll certainly look into it. You know, I haven't been big on apologizing. You this is sound
1: that. from one of Trump's campaign rallies, a town hall-style event in Ohio.
2: Apologizes. I'll look into it. We're going to do one more. I'm going to look into that. Okay, let's go. One more. Come on. We want a good one. Give me a fun one. Give me a fun question, okay?
1: Like Reagan, Trump had a background in the entertainment industry. His most popular role was as host of the television show The Apprentice, but he also frequently appeared in professional wrestling and cinema, usually as a comically exaggerated version of himself.
2: Go ahead, it better be good, because I don't want to leave with a bad question.
1: Maybe part of Trump's rise came from Americans not caring as much about what our presidents say, so long as they're funny.
0: From my perspective...
1: Emily Nussbaum again.
0: If you say something that's cruel or that's racist or in some way is a bullying thing to say, but you say it in the form of a joke... You have this built-in deniability. So then you can respond, it's just a joke. You have no sense of humor. So there's this there's this power dynamic around jokes where they become useful carriers for both dishonest things and things that kind of make ugly ideas seem entertaining and liberating in their own right.
1: Emily thinks the danger of Trump is that his persona is so comical. The oversized suit, the loud bluster, the hyperbole that people don't take some of the terrible things he says seriously. Like on CNN in December of 2015, when asked about his strategy for fighting ISIS.
2: When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They, they care about their lives, don't kid yourself. Mr. But they Trump... say they don't care about their lives, you have to take out their families.
1: In Trump, we are seeing what happens when the jester and the king are the same person. The spectacle is so overpowering that both supporters and detractors have trouble recognizing the difference between truth and farce. We are blinded by a weaponized humor. What is the solution to this dangerous mix of humor and politics? Some have sought to fight fire with fire, hoping that by mocking Trump and his supporters enough, truth will prevail. Is much more reflective of who Here's he HBO's John Oliver Trump in his famous Make Donald Drumpf Again segment Trump. in February of 2016.
2: Stop and take a moment to imagine how you would feel if you just met a guy named Donald Drumpf. <laughs> a litigious serial liar with a string of broken business ventures and the support of a former Klan leader who he can't decide whether or not to condemn. <laughs> would you think he would make a good president or is the spell now somewhat broken?
1: Obviously, the spell wasn't broken. And Trump's election has provoked many people to question the tactics of the quote-unquote liberal comedy industrial complex. Many of our most popular satire shows, led by comedians like Jon Stewart, Bill Maher, and Samantha Bee, are often about punching down on the values and beliefs of ordinary Americans. Such a dynamic may have created conditions where humor was seen as less about speaking truth to power and more about just taking
2: sides. So it's a, there's a danger in trying to counter him with culture and trying to counter him with with satire when when that's how that's his tool. That's Avi Steinberg again. I think we need to take that very seriously and, and not just oh my god he just you know he's using this as a tool, but how how we all of us have played an important part in creating someone like him is he was sort of inevitable. If Steinberg is right that we all
1: bear some responsibility for our current political mess then we might need to rethink our blend of humor and politics. We might start by not expecting our politicians and news shows to entertain us. We could also look for new forms of humor, a humor that punches up, a humor that not only tells the truth, but tells us about the things
2: that really matter. Maybe what we're looking for is a comedy that's, that's not professional, or that's something that has to do with people, everyday people, or a comedy of the street a comedy somewhere else that maybe is not being that's not being beamed to us and maybe that's what we're looking for and that's the subversive comedy
1: What a culture finds funny captures essential aspects of its hopes and fears its dreams and anxieties laughter is one of the surest ways to get through dark times but it also might point us toward the light Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson Zachary Davis Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubandspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one painting at a time. The show is hosted by a brilliant art historian named Tamar Avishai, and she is able to do the seemingly impossible, make art history exciting and relevant. One of my favorite episodes is about this Degas painting of an old woman It is exactly the kind of painting I usually stroll right by in a museum. But with beautiful clarity, Tamar shows how this painting is actually artistically and philosophically thrilling. Check it out at thelonelypalette.com. To close this episode on a fun note, here is Squidward from SpongeBob SquarePants playing a jester. My producers tried to get me to leave this out, but I just couldn't resist.
0: Oh, hear me, king, for I must sing How you are the greatest at everything Like letting a dragon burn down our city A horrible sight that wasn't pretty T'was all your fault, and tis a pity You were bad, you are to blame Now hang your kingly head in shame la 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 The king is bad, the king's to blame He hangs his kingly head in shame la 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 la